chapter 4. And as you're turning, I've been asked to introduce myself. My name is Rock LaJoya. This is my wife, Kathy. It's our privilege to be here. I am a professor of pastoral studies at Grace Theological Seminary. And when I first started, I was directing one doctoral program, the Doctor of Ministry, and then more recently, the Doctor of Intercultural Studies, and now a third one. We have a new uh, Korean online doctoral program, believe it or not, and so I'm directing that as well, having a lot of fun. Most important thing about me, I'm a forgiven sinner saved by Jesus Christ, and that's the most important thing I can say. Other than that, here's the blessing of my life, my wife. And we have our first grandson. We just got the visit. He's, is he seven months now? Cute little guy. He's out in Maryland. We got to see him, and so that's a blessing. I haven't heard a bad thing about being a grandparent, and now I'm experiencing that, and I think all the grandparents were correct. It's such a blessing, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so First Thessalonians chapter 4. Before we begin, let's speak to the author of this text, and then we're going to dig in together. Shall we pray? Father, what a blessing it is to open up your word and to hear you speak to us. We need constant correction and realignment in our thinking, and we're grateful for the privilege we have to do such. We pray that you would uh, renew in us, if it's not there already, a sense of anticipation that you could come back literally at any time, as far as I know, nothing precluding you from doing that. It would be pretty incredible if you did it even today. But meanwhile, help us to be faithful to certainly be looking for your return, but also to really dig in and serve with all that you've given us, the gifts, the skills, the abilities, the experiences, the relationships, all the things you've equipped us with so that we can be a blessing to others. I pray that you would bless this congregation and cause them to thrive spiritually and to grow and to make a difference in this community. And so, Lord, it's our honor to hear you speak, so guide us where you will, give us a teachable spirit, and help us to hear and heed in a very uh, excited way to want to do your will and see what you're going to do in the future. So guide us. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. And all my brothers and sisters said, Thessalonians chapter 4. A dark gloom was in the air. I remember it well. The men wore black suits and the women wore black dresses and they had black veils over their faces. Everyone was sad. Many were weeping and wailing uh, uncontrollably. And one woman was so overcome with grief that she actually fainted. As families entered the funeral home, they registered their attendance and then they proceeded toward the casket, which was in the front. They knelt at the little altar and they prayed for the soul of the deceased. Well, did all of this grief flow from a sense of personal loss? I would assume it did. I don't know anyone who, when losing a loved one, doesn't grieve and mourn and hurt. But I believe most of the grief could be attributed to an underlying sense of hopelessness. Hopelessness because the future of the deceased was uncertain. The loved ones weren't sure where this person was in eternity. And perhaps you've been overcome with a sense of hopelessness over the death of a loved one. As the years accumulate, most of us lose friends and family. 
the young church at Thessalonica was beginning to experience a sense of hopelessness. Apparently, a few fellow believers had died, and the Thessalonians thought that the future of the deceased was uncertain. Perhaps they confused Jesus' teaching where Jesus said, quoting him now, There are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Mark 9.1. Maybe they were confused by the apocryphal teaching, which they knew well. It's not scripture, but was a popular book, 2 Ezra 13.24, which says those who are left alive are more blessed than those. wonder to themselves, well, will only the living saints be caught up to heaven? We would say be raptured to heaven. They were wondering, when Jesus returns, will our departed friends and loved ones remain in the grave? You can see how that line of thinking could cause hopelessness, right? And so receiving word that the Thessalonians were beginning to despair as an act of compassion... The Apostle Paul wrote to comfort them with the following truth. Very simple truth, but hopefully a truth that springs in your heart and gives you a buoyancy. And the truth very simply is that the rapture is certain for all believers in Christ. The rapture is certain for all, dead or alive, all believers in Jesus Christ. Now, there's much confusion about the rapture, and maybe you're even confused about the future of loved ones, where they're going to be. Um, Maybe you're confused about your own future hope in Christ. What I want to do in the interest of greater clarity as we go through this text is consider three assurances with you that the rapture is, in fact, certain. We've got God's word on it. And so I want to look at those assurances with you. The rapture is certain for all believers in Christ. Why so? Well, here's one assurance, and we're going to see it immediately in the text, and that is the rapture is assured because of the Lord's resurrection. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's resurrection. Now, we're going to dig in the text, picking up at verse 13, but before we do, let me just very briefly lay out some of the views here. This is in the interest of full disclosure. There's at least three major views on the timing of the rapture. In other words, when will the rapture occur, the rapture of the church? The first view is called post-tribulationalism. Of course, you know there is a seven-year tribulation period coming. And this view would say that the Lord will return after the seven years and take the church up with him. And uh, basically what they're saying is the rapture and the second coming are the same event. There's only one event, as they would see it, not two phases or two. Always in First Thessalonians. Let's go to Matthew together. Matthew 24. And first of all, we'll look at verse 29. I'm just going to show you the logic of the argument, Matthew 24, picking up at verse 29. I want to look at two verses here, actually. Matthew 24, verse 29. These are the words of Jesus. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. So what's about to be said 
occurs after the tribulation. Now, if you look down at verse, uh, let's see, verse 31, just a couple verses down there, Matthew 24, 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So a post-tribulationist would say, there it is, uh, there is the church at the end of the tribulation being raptured. And ostensibly it looks that way, doesn't it? And we have a great trumpet, we have angels gathering the elect. And so, is this the case? Well, people who are more Christ-like than me hold this view, just so you know, I don't hold this particular view, but I'm just explaining what the views are. And so, um, this view would say that the seventh trumpet. As you know, in the tribulation, there are a series of three judgments, seals, trumpets, bowls, STB, seals, trumpets, bowls, soprano, tenor, bass, STB. It's a good way to remember it. Seal, seven seals. Once the seventh seal is open, then the seven trumpets are unleashed. Once those are sounded, the seventh trumpet, which I believe would be the midpoint of the tribulation. That's my personal view. By the way, if you disagree with me, I love you anyway. It's not a problem. So don't worry about a thing, okay? Uh, And there are godly people who hold these different views, but I'm just trying to explain in a nutshell what these views are. Um, So they will take the seventh trumpet and say, uh, now, there it is. That's that's the rapture because it says in uh, 1 Corinthians that uh, there's a trumpet, right, during the rapture. Uh, I just want to say there's a number of trumpets, and so there's a trumpet, I believe, that ends... what I would call the rapture and then also the second coming of Christ. Now, we're going to see with the rapture that Jesus himself personally raptures the church. And, of course, uh, later on during the second coming, there are angels who gather Israel. I take this elect as the nation of Israel there in Matthew twenty-four thirty-one. I, I think that's Israel there. The second view, and I think I already alluded to it actually, is the mid-tribulation view. By the name, you can tell that would say that three and a half years into the seven-year period, that's when the rapture occurs. And the major distinction there is that um, the first half, they would argue, is the wrath of man, because Antichrist is doing some things and other evil, evil people. The second half is the wrath of God. And they would agree with my view, as you're going to see in a moment, is the pre-tribulational view. Again, if you disagree, not a problem. But they would uh, agree, as the first view says there's one event, right, post-trip. Second view says there's two events. There is a rapture and then the second coming of Christ, but they're separated by three and a half years, the second half of the seven-year period. The, the logic is they would agree with my view, which is that we were promised as believers not to face the wrath of God. And they would say, you're right. However, we don't think all seven years is the wrath of God, only the last three and a half Okay, well, then what are the first three and a half? Well, they would say that's the wrath of man. And so uh, that's the view. I would disagree with that. Um, and I'll show you just very, very briefly. By the way, if you're waiting for the rapture to be in the middle of the tribulation period, what is it that starts the tribulation period? It's when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel 
And that officially, quote, launches or kicks off the seven-year period, right? Now, if you're mid-trib, that covenant precedes the rapture of the church, which means the church goes through the first three and a half years. And so if you are a mid-trib, you are looking, first of all, for the Antichrist. If you are pre-trib, you're looking for Christ. Now, for example, if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're there pretty much anyway in chapter 4, right? 1 Thess chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, right? Who rescues us from the wrath to come. So if you hold the pre-trib view, you're looking for the next event to happen, which is the return of Jesus Christ. You're looking for Christ. That's why it's called the blessed hope. If he's coming mid-trib, you're looking for the Antichrist to sign that covenant, launch the seven years, and then you've got to wait three and a half, right, for Christ to come. Now, let me show you very quickly. um, What I want to do is give an answer to the view which says that the first three and a half years are the wrath of man and not the wrath of God. So if you go over to Revelation, I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. Fasten your seatbelts. I don't want anybody to get whiplash here. We're going to move really quick. You might want to stretch your fingers out like this because we're going to have to turn a few pages here. Rev 5, Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to do this really quick, so hang in there with me. This is the throne room scene in heaven. It says, Rev 5.1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. This is really a scroll. And I saw, another vision now, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. No human being, I don't care if it's a president or anything down, has the qualifications to open these seals. And these seals, as I say, there's a series of seven. That's the first uh, series of judgments. Once the seventh one is opened up on on the scroll, then you have seven trumpets. Those are sounded forth. Once the seventh one is sounded, then the bowl judgments are poured out, okay? So nothing can happen... The tribulation cannot come until somebody opens up this scroll. And as it turns out, nobody's qualified. No one. So notice what happens. John realizes this, verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly. Why? Because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, unless we find a candidate to open this scroll, there will be no seven years, no first half, no second half, nothing. Five, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So now, finally, we have somebody who's qualified to open the scroll. And who is it? Jesus, right? Now, he's qualified. The question is, will he do it? If he doesn't do it, my friends, there is no seven-year tribulation period. It's all in his hands. Therefore, whatever happens when he opens these seals, we can rightly call the wrath of the Lamb. And it's called that later on in Revelation. So this is not the wrath of man. 
Now, he may use people, as he always does, but this is the wrath of Jesus Christ, or we could say the wrath of God. So look at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and took the book, I would say scroll, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, look at 6.1. Then I saw when the Lamb, that is Jesus, broke one of the seven seals. Look at verse 3. When he broke the second seal, who did? Jesus. Verse 5. When he broke the third seal, who's that? Jesus. Verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal. Verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. This is all the Lamb. Now let's go to 8-1. There's still another seal, right? 8-1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So the point is, the first half of the tribulation, you say, well, what about the trumpets? Okay, 8-6. And when the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound, so the seals, Christ opens personally. The trumpets, he sends the angels to sound them. There's no wrath of man here. That they're doing God's bidding. Okay, well, the last thing is the bowls. What about those? Good question. I'm glad you asked. You're a sharp audience. Revelation 16 and verse 1. The jury's still out on the speaker, but we know the audience is intelligent, so that's a good start. 16.1. These are the bowls now, the last of the series of three. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, from the temple, so this is God speaking to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So whether it's angels who are messengers of God or God himself, are we going to call this the angel's wrath? No, this is God's wrath. So back to the view, the mid-tribulation view, that the first three and a half years are man's wrath. The Bible presents all seven years as God's wrath. And even if that view was correct, I don't think it is personally, but let's entertain that for a moment. We're not just promised to be exempt from the wrath of God. But notice, if you go to Revelation 3.10, it's the last time we'll turn, then we'll get to our text. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. And I, I really don't want to belabor the point, but I find there's so much uh, fuzzy thinking. And as I get around, I preach most uh, all over the place, really, various churches, these questions, people have them on their minds, and they're not being answered, and these need to be addressed. This is the Word of God. I believe the scriptures are anywhere, depending on the scholars you read, from 25% to 33% of the entire Bible, prophetic literature. That's a big chunk of the Bible to ignore, right? 310, here we go, words of Jesus. He's speaking to the church of Philadelphia. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the wrath of the testing. No, no, no. It doesn't say that. What does it say there? Depending on your translation, from the hour of testing. That hour, the seven-year tribulation period, which is about to come, it's not localized, hear the words, upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a worldwide seven-year judgment, and Jesus says, I'm not just going to protect you from the wrath. I'm going to protect you from all seven years. Not just three and a half years, all seven years. All right, 
So by now you know my view. I'm just so you know where I'm coming from. That's why I'm stating this. Uh, I hold the pre-tribulation view. Again, if you disagree, and if you have questions afterwards, come see me. So let's go now to 1 Thessalonians 4 and look at the text. At least now you understand my perspective as I go through this, okay? 1 Thess 4, verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, the previous section there, 1 Thess 4, 1 through 12, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to moral purity, brotherly love, and honesty. And then in verse 13, notice the first word there, but right here then in verse 13, Paul introduces a complete change in subject, that is the certainty of the rapture for all believers in Christ. So the first question is, who who are these people, those who are asleep? Well, believers who have died in Christ would be called those who are asleep. Sleep is a metaphor for death. Remember Jesus said regarding Lazarus, uh, if you want it, it's uh, John 11, 11. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So was Lazarus snoring? No, he died, right? That's a metaphor. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep, that is, out of death. For the Christian, sleep and death both are temporary. Isn't that a blessing? Think of our word cemetery in the Greek koimeterion. You know what that word literally means? A sleeping place. And it's exactly the case for the believer because they're only there temporary at best, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And by the way, good news for those who are getting older like me, there's a trade-in model coming. It's not going to rust. You don't have to tune it up. It's going to go, 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 go. I can't wait for that one because this one's starting to slow down. It needs some maintenance. So why does Paul not want them to be uninformed? He says in verse, if you look at verse 13 there, you'll see it, that you may not grieve. Now, we should grieve our personal loss of deceased loved ones. I would argue there's probably something wrong if at some point you're not grieving somebody you lost who you love dearly, right? That's normal. But we should not grieve over the eternal gain of a deceased believer because when you die in Christ, it's gain, right? He says that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Unbelievers have no hope of resurrection unto eternal life, only unto eternal death. Their future is not bright. This is why you'll hear, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is heaven now. Get all you can. Because once it's over, it's over. For us, it's the opposite. The best is yet to come, right? The last chapter of the story is the best part. Whatever you face down here, it will pass. The best is yet to come. It's, it's so incredible. There's not even words for it. We can't really take it in. It's that great. In other words, we have a brilliant future ahead. And that should put a spring in our steps now, right, as we think about it. Though some philosophers talked about an afterlife, it was not popular belief in first century uh, living. And so I'm going to quote a few here. You don't have to get these down. 
Greek poet Theocritus wrote, hope is for the living, the dead are without hope. This is their culture. This is what they're swimming in in the first century. Roman poet Catullus wrote, suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. Pretty depressing, huh? A tomb at Thessalonica reads, After death, there is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. So perhaps this hopeless perspective even influenced the church at Thessalonica, or at least some in that church. And so Paul gives some corroboration. Now look at verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died... And rose again. Since Jesus promised resurrection is a historical fact, we can be confident that Jesus' promise to raise the dead in Christ will be a reality. One translator puts it like this Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then it follows that by means of Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, count on it. It's as sure as the resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. Here's a paraphrase. Jesus died and rose again. We all believe this already. Therefore, this assures us that God will take back to himself those who have died believing in him. It's a great truth. But why is this the case? Well, Christ and believers are united, right? We're super glued together, right? Nothing can take us apart. Our future is tied in with Christ. And so, what happened to the head of the body will likewise happen to the members of the body, right? Did you ever hear the expression, dead man's float? You can kind of float on the water. If somebody were to sit still on the water, if you were to push their head under the water, what would happen to the members of their body? Wouldn't they also go down? So, the fate of the head is also the fate of The body. We're the body of Christ, right? We're linked in with him. Why would Jesus resurrect his own body and ascend, but then leave the saints in the clutches of death? Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. John 14, 9. It's good enough for me, but I'll even throw in one. I'll put some frosting on the cake. Paul assures us, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us Also, 2 Corinthians 4.15. But there's more. Not only are we united with Christ, think about it. Christ's victory over death is not fully realized until every saint is resurrected. Then the complete job is done, right? Some of that's still yet to happen. The rapture advances Christ's victory toward full realization because then... All believers are resurrected or translated. If it happened today, we would be translated. We're alive. Our dead aunt, uncle, and cousin would be resurrected, right? We meet them in the air. 1 Corinthians 15.4, or or 54, I should say, for your notes. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And he taunts death here. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where 
is your sting. And so Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inseparably linked. It's a fact. You can count on it. You can bank on it. That's the way it is. According to the creator of the universe, this is the way it is. So our future is secure. We don't have to wring our hands over the future. We don't have to worry about a departed loved one in Jesus Christ. As long as we know they're in Christ, they're doing better than us right now, right? We're stuck down here in the rat race. They're up there in the presence of the one who loves us more than anybody else, the one we claim we love more than anybody else, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a promotion, really. Meanwhile, we've got to be faithful while we're down here, but bring on the rapture now, Lord. I'm ready. Maranatha, bring it on now. I'm ready. So that's why I enjoy when you were singing Jesus is coming again. That's how it should be. That should put a spring in our step, right? That's why we need to hear this doctrine more. It's, it's, there's something salutary about it. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inseparably linked. The first fruits of the crop, which is Christ, guarantee the rest of the harvest, and that's us. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's resurrection. The Roman emperor Theodosius was an Orthodox Christian, and one great day he opened all of the prisons, he was in a generous mood, and he released all of the prisoners. And then he thought about it and he lamented, and now would to God that I could open all of the tombs and give life to the dead. Well, Emperor Theodosius was willing to raise the dead, but certainly not able, right? Only Jesus Christ has the power to raise the dead. The resurrected Christ can raise the dead and take them to heaven with him. Isn't that incredible? He loves us that much. Christ's resurrection impacts our future and the future of our departed loved ones in Christ. By the way, verse 13 also implies that the rapture gives us hope here and now in the present. Some talk about eschatology is the fancy word, the doctrine of last things. They say, well, you know, that's that pie in the sky stuff for down the road. What does that have to do with the price of tomatoes at the grocery store? Well, wait a minute. It has a lot of relevance for today. Here's a verse if you want to write it down. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. John writes, When Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, hope in the present, here and now, today, right now, not just reserved for the future, Everyone who has this present hope right now, fixed on him, hear it now, purifies himself just as he is pure. This is not just a doctrine to write down in your notes. This should make you live a pure life. Let's put it this way. I'm just exaggerating now to make a point. Let's say you and I were working together here on some kind of a scandal. We're going to rob some store, take all their TVs and sell them for profit. Of course, give it to the church, right? But then we know uh, Jesus is about to walk in. Literally, he's going to walk in this room in two minutes. For sure, he's coming back, let's say. Would we still be working on our little scam and scandal here? If I knew he was coming back right now, I'd have my face in the carpet repenting of every known sin, wouldn't you? If he really was coming back. But here's the thing. He really is, He believe me, he really is coming back. Two minutes, I don't know. Five minutes, five months, I don't know. But he really is coming back, and there's nothing preventing him from coming back right now. And so that should have an impact, a purifying hope 
It's also called a blessed, or shall I say it, a happy hope. Christians who have a spring in their step are looking for the return of Christ. There's something spiritually good about it here and now in the present. So please do not just file it in your notebooks for a later date. It should have an impact on us now. He's a real person, we're real people, and that real person could come back and interrupt our lives in a good way right now. That should make a difference if we really believe this doctrine. 1 John 3 points that out, and there's others as well. Please don't be caught by surprise. In your daily life, rely upon the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead as you fight against sin and pursue purity. I hope I'm in a really good state when the Lord returns. I I hope that I'm doing his will. I'd love him to come back when I'm right in the middle of serving him with a pure heart. I would be embarrassed and worse if he found me committing a sin. There's a purifying factor here in the present. The rapture is assured. Why? Because of the Lord's resurrection. So what are we learning? We're learning that the rapture is certain for all believers in Christ, dead or alive, if they know Christ, the rapture is certain. And we're looking at some assurances. We've seen one, and that is the rapture is assured because of the Lord's resurrection. Here's another assurance for you, and that is the rapture is assured because of the Lord's revelation. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's revelation. You'll see it in the text. If you look with me, please, at verse 15, Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then he elaborates, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, doesn't he use that word, uh, if you look at verse 15 there, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep, implying that it might be the other way. And then finally he says, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. First, isn't that interesting, the order there? He says, for this we say to you, verse 15, by the word of the Lord. Now, Paul here technically is not quoting scripture. So what does he mean by the word of the Lord? He's communicating a revelation he received directly from the Lord. Apparently, the Lord gave this to him directly. And this revelation gave certitude and assurance to the Thessalonians regarding the fate of of their deceased loved ones. Remember, the point he's addressing here is their concern over dead loved ones, people who died in Christ, and they're wondering, are they going to miss out on the rapture because they're dead now, and only we who are alive are going to experience it? So he says, verse 15, don't miss the word there, that we who are alive, Paul included himself, because he believed that the rapture could occur at any time. So let's just talk about Paul's lifestyle for a moment. What was his view of the rapture? He thought it was imminent. He thought it could happen in his lifetime. Was he wrong? No, he didn't say it was going to happen in his lifetime. I'm not saying it's going to happen in our lifetimes either. No one knows. But I know of nothing that prevents it from happening now or an hour from now or whatever, right? There's, there's not, I can't say, well, these three things have to happen and then Christ will return, right? 
you hold a different view, then you, if you hold like mid-trip, well, three and a half years have to go by, and then he'll return. So again, so the Antichrist has to come first and do his thing for three and a half years, and then Christ comes. See what I mean? Imminency means he can come literally at any time, nothing whatsoever precluding him. And I'm going to live the way Paul lived, assuming he may, and he may, I'm not saying he will, I don't know, but it's certainly possible that he could come back in our lifetimes. Some would argue it's even probable, based on what they're seeing in in our world today, but even there, they're not going to say it's going to happen for sure in our lifetimes. It's going to happen for sure. But in our lifetimes, I don't know. I can't say what year. But Paul is living as though it may happen in his lifetime. That's the way to live. I'm going to take his cue on that. Jesus said, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Acts 1.7 No human knows the timing of the rapture, and so we should live with an attitude of expectancy based upon the reality of imminency. Fancy word, again, just means that he could come back imminently at any time. One scholar says this, the last day is hidden that every day may be regarded. Are you living as though Christ might return at any time? That will have an impact on your lifestyle. Verse 15, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. There's going to be a whole generation of believers who will not experience death. And let's just say the Lord were to come back tomorrow. That could be us, right? Alive when he comes back. And then again, our dead relatives in Christ will be resurrected first. So what he's saying is, you know, you're worried about your loved ones in Christ, that they're not going to experience the rapture. Let me tell you this. They've got a leg on you because they're going to be resurrected first, and then you're going to follow them, and you're going to fly the friendly skies reunited as you meet Christ in the clouds, right? So a whole generation will not experience death. And by the way, we only know of two people in history who were taken up to heaven before they died. Who are they? One begins with an E. Good. Another one begins with an E, going back earlier. Enoch, right? I'll give you the verses. Enoch, you'll find that in uh, Hebrews 11.5. You can just write it down. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. They were going for a walk together. God took his hand and said, let's keep walking, and took him all the way up to heaven. He didn't experience death. Elijah, 2 Kings 2.11, if you want it. 2 Kings 2.11. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. You see, the rapture is the grand exception to death. And only the king of life, God himself, could think of such a thing. For your notes, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, something that previously was not revealed. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed, either translated or resurrected, depending. Translated is for those who are alive. Resurrection is for those who died. What a wonderful truth. This was great news for the Thessalonians who thought that their deceased loved ones might miss the rapture. In this case, they were glad to be corrected. Are you glad when you're corrected? I am. I'm not so proud that I think I know everything. If you are glad when you're corrected... That means you've got a teachable spirit. That's how we all should be, right? There's so much of the Bible I still don't know. After all these years of studying it, 
I can study it the rest of my life. Raise your hand if you've mastered the whole book of Isaiah. Anybody? That's only one out of 66, my friends. We've got a lot to keep us busy. This is why I don't have time for the add-ons, you know, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Jehovah Witness, whatever their book is, the Bible Plus. I'm too busy trying to master this one book. When I master this, then you can talk to me about those other books. For now, I've got a lot to do. I'm not going to master it this side of heaven. But I'm trying anyway. I'm trying to learn as much as I can and grow. So here it is. Here's the timing now. Verse 15, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. That word means to go first or to gain an advantage. And so he's saying, look, don't worry about your relatives. If anything, they're going to beat you up there. They're, they're up first, and then you follow. For the Lord himself, here it is, verse 16. This is really the point now. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, literally a shout of command. In John 5.25, Jesus said this, The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. This is Christ's shout of command through the archangel's voice and God's trumpet, all simultaneous. People are going to hear this. And so, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, these two are united by a conjunction here. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says this, 15.52, Paul writes, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, how fast is that? That's really quick, right? I'm going to twinkle my eye. You got a time stopper? You put your clock on. I just twinkled my eye. Was that a hundredth of a second? or It's that fast, a nanosecond, right? At the last trumpet, that is the last trumpet of the church age, not the last trumpet of the seven trumpets during judgment. This is a blessed trumpet. The other one is a doomed trumpet. You don't want to hear that one. And in my understanding, you won't. Some would disagree with me, and that's fine. But this is the last trumpet that ends the church age. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. Verse 16, the dead in Christ shall rise First, the dead in Christ will be resurrected prior to the translation of the living. So if it happens today, our deceased aunt, uncle, and cousin will be resurrected first, and then we will be translated, right? And we all meet Christ in the air. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, on the authority of the Lord's revelation, the dead in Christ shall rise first. As one scholar puts it, Paul attributed the highest possible authority to his assertion in verse 15. In doing so, he undoubtedly hoped to give his readers certitude regarding the participation of dead Christians in the assumption to heaven with their Lord. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's revelation. We've got God's word on it, and it's as good as anything, right? When her four-month-old baby stopped breathing, what would you do if you're a mom? Her four-month-old baby stopped breathing. Mrs. Oates immediately called for an ambulance. And when the ambulance arrived, the baby was still not breathing. There were no signs of life. Even first aid failed to resuscitate the baby. But when the driver turned on the emergency siren, the baby jumped, coughed, and struggled back to life. And so it will be when the dead in Christ around the world hear the piercing sound of the voice of the archangel, God's trumpet, and the shout and command of Christ. This is a formal summons from Christ. How can we be sure? Is this just hearsay? Well, because, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word 
of the Lord. And so I would encourage all of us to train ourselves to savor, hear the word, savor the prophetic scriptures. I'm not hearing much of this anymore. I'm an old timer, I'll admit, I'm a dinosaur, as the young people would call me. I'm a Tyrannosaurus Rex or Brontosaurus or whatever. But back in the day, we heard a lot more about the return of Christ. And it was a happy hope. People sang, as you did, that song, Jesus is Coming Again. No matter what we face down here, we can lift above it because we've got something incredible to look forward to. And I'm not hearing it so much anymore. No wonder we're in the dull drums today, right? Especially with all that's going on, we need to be assured that God has us covered. He's, he knows the future. He knows the past. He knows the beginning. He's in the eternal present. He knows it all. And he has a wonderful plan for his children. And so I want to challenge you. If you have a pen, write these down. This is for future reference, maybe for later this week. You can savor these verses. Here they are. I would encourage you to read these, pray over them, think about them. John 14, 1 through 3. And my understanding, that's the first teaching on the rapture in the upper room, Jesus. John 14, 1 through 3. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Just those two verses there. And then, of course, the one we're looking at now, 1 Thess 4, 13 through 18. And the last one I'll give you is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. 2 Thess 2, 1 through 12. You'll be amazed at what you can learn from the Lord's revelation. For example, think about this. The word church occurs 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3. Three chapters, 19 times. Church, 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 all the time. 19 times. That's a lot. At the end of the book, John resumes his address to the church, and he uses the word church once more in 2216. Rev 2216. In between that, there's no mention of the church. Does that prove anything? I can't prove it in a test tube in a laboratory. But it would imply that the church is not going to be in the tribulation period. John knows how to use church. He overuses it, you might say, in the beginning of the book. Doesn't bring it out to the end after the whole wrap-up of future things. He has a little sign-off at the end, and he mentions the church again. Where's the church? With the Lord in heaven would be my understanding. During the bulk of the book, which describes a tribulation, the word church never appears. <clears throat> Let me show you what I mean real quick. <clears throat> this is a quick survey. Let's go to Revelation uh, chapter 2. And verse 7, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, I believe here this is uh, during the church age, 2-7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to what? To the churches, right? Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches. 2-17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See it there? 229, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches. How about chapter 3? Look at verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How about 313? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches, right? 322, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One more. Go to chapter 13 and verse 9. And in chapter 13 now, we're in the tribulation period, right? The seven-year period. 13 and verse 9. 
See it there? 13.9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches, right? You see it there? 13.9. You don't see it? Is your Bible printed in Salt Lake City? Mine doesn't have it either. Why is it not there? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's all he says. Could it be that the church is not there in a tribulation period? I can't prove it in a test tube, but it sure seems that way. And that word church doesn't come about until the very end of the book, after all the future. I'll just show you if you want to go there. 22.16. He talks about the New Jerusalem, right? Chapter 22. And then it's all over. All the future things are over. And now back to his audience, if you will. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Here's what this book is all about. It's to the churches, okay? But during all that future information, there's no mention of the church. Again, I can't prove it, but it sure seems like the church is not there. That would at least tie in with the tribulation view. The bottom line is the rapture is assured, and I want to know why, and that is because of the Lord's revelation. So, What are we learning? We're learning that the rapture is certain for all believers in Christ. We're asking, are there any assurances? We've seen two. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's resurrection. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's revelation. And one more, the rapture is assured because of the Lord's return. The rapture is assured because of the Lord's return. Now look at verse 17, chapter 4 of Thessalonians. 1 Thess 4. Verse 17, then, after the dead in Christ are raised, we who are alive, we're not dead, we're alive when it happens, let's say, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together, that's the word for rapture there, caught up together with them, with who? With our dead loved ones in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, as a result of this teaching, comfort one another with these words. So look at verse 17. We who are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up. Literally, to catch away speedily. Just like that. Twinkling of an eye, right? Just that fast. The same word occurs in Acts 8.39. It talks about the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now, Philip wasn't taken to heaven, but he was raptured in the sense that he was relocated to another place. It's a good way to save some money on gas and plane tickets, etc. Together with them, where? Where do they all end up? In the clouds, literally. How do I know it's literal? Well, Acts 1-9, for your notes, Acts 1-9, Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud, a literal cloud, received him out of their sight. Immediately afterward, two angels say this, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way during the rapture as you have watched him go into heaven. And so the order of events is this. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. That's the first event, right? Then those who are alive in Christ will be translated into immortal bodies. That's where you get your trade-in model. In in this case, if it happens today, we're not dead. We just get a new uh, multi-mileage new body. And then all believers will be caught up in the clouds. And so the rapture, rapture is certain for all believers, whether dead in Christ or alive in Christ, physically speaking, right? And look at the phrase there, verse 17, to meet the Lord in the air. I believe the rapture is a separate event from the second coming of Christ. The rapture occurs at the beginning of the seven years 
after the seven years, and we're in heaven for those seven years, after the seven years, we come back with Christ to the earth. The first time we meet him in the clouds, he doesn't even put his feet on the ground. But then the second time, he actually plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. For your notes, Zechariah 14.4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's a separate event. That's the second coming of Christ. And that phrase there, to meet, for the sake of time, let me just say that is a, a solemn assembly. He's calling his people to meet with him, kind of like Moses called his people to meet at the foot of Mount Sinai there. He calls Moses up, for example. Verse 16, here's the point. The Lord himself will descend. The Lord in person. Jesus himself, physically in person, will come back. And it's emphatic there, that word. The Lord himself, he will return personally. Verse 16, with a shout. The Lord will issue an urgent and authoritative summons. Because of his return and summons, his children must be caught up to meet him in the air. It's a command. Come up here. So the rapture is assured because of the Lord's return. Now, don't miss it. You say, all this pie-in-the-sky stuff has nothing to do with today. I can just go get lunch and we're done. Nice study, preacher. See you later. Nope. Verse 18. Therefore, since you heard all these wonderful truths... Comfort, that's a command, comfort one another with these words. What words? Verse 17. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus said, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 3. That's comforting. How many funerals have I uh, officiated at through the years? And I use those very words, First Thessalonians 4. What do people need when they lose a loved one? They need comfort. What a beautiful text to use at a funeral. This is a challenge for all of us. Am I comforting and encouraging others with the fact that Christ is coming for us and we're going to be with him forever? That's comfort, right? Are you cultivating a love for Christ's appearing? If not, don't feel bad. Today's a new day. Start now. Read some of those passages I gave you as an example. And get fired up for the return of Christ. Pray for a sense of joyful anticipation as you look daily, daily, I would argue hourly, maybe even minute by minute, for the return of Jesus Christ. You see, the rapture is certain for all believers in Jesus Christ. My friend Art, who's with the Lord now, was built like a prize fighter. And during the Prohibition, of course, I was a young man then. He was much up in years at that point. During the Prohibition days, I'm old, but I don't go back to Prohibition days. Just want you to know. Okay, that's way before my time even. During Prohibition days, Art used to bootleg booze, believe it or not, for El Capone back in Chicago. Well, one day, Art asked a young lady to, to the dance, and she said, No, but I'll let you take me to a worship service. See, she was a Christian. He, he was not, just based on his behavior, you would know that, right? Well, Art took her to Pacific Garden Mission. If you haven't heard of that, that's a street ministry. He's been there over 100 years. I used to do services there many years ago, downtown Chicago, reaching out to down and outers on the street. Wonderful ministry. They have a worship service, free food, free dental care, everything. It's great ministry. So he took her there to a service, and guess what? He got saved in the process. 
And so what did he do immediately, which is a dangerous thing to do? He severed ties with the mafia, with El Capone. He wanted to get out of that, right? He's a Christian now. He doesn't want any part of that, really. And so he lived for Christ, and he was a soul winner. He led many people to faith. It's the first thing he would talk about when you met him, he'd talk about Jesus and try to get people saved. Wonderful guy. Great influence on this young man. And so the first time I met Art, he shared his testimony, and I was at his house. He showed me, he says, come here, young man. He showed me a plaque on his wall, and he said, read that. And it said, you are the only Bible some people will ever read. And God drilled that in my heart. That stuck with me. I realized wherever I go, I'm representing Christ, and I want to represent him well. He had a big impact on me. He prayed for me regularly. He was 90 years old when he died. I remember at the funeral service, somebody asking, and it was one of those, hard for me to describe the feel there, but there was a sense of joy. You would say, well, somebody died. How could people be joyful? Well, we miss the man, right? But we know where he's at, and we're celebrating his impact. And at the funeral service, someone asked me, have you ever been to a funeral service where there was so much hope and peace? And they were right. I've never been to one like that. I remember his granddaughter said, he's with Jesus now, and I know I'll see him again. There was no worry about where Art was. I know he's in heaven right now. No doubts. He's with Jesus, right? And that's where we're going to be someday if we know Christ as Savior. That may happen sooner than we think. If he were to return today or tomorrow, I don't know when. All I know is the rapture is certain for all believers in Christ because of, we see now in the text, the Lord's resurrection his revelation, and his personal return. He's in this room right now. Why don't we speak to him in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are and for all the awesome things you do for us. We pray that you would grant each of us a heightened awareness of your soon return. Lord, please give us a sense of hope as we pursue purity in our lives. Increase our assurance as we savor the prophetic scriptures. And Lord, please comfort us as we cultivate a love for your appearing. Bestow upon us a spirit of joyful anticipation as we search daily for your return. May it have an impact on our lives and the lives of others. We pray this in the majestic name of Jesus. And all my brothers and sisters said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.